There are few holiday traditions I find more appealing than storytelling. Really, that's most of what we do as humans, is just tell stories. But we don't think of it that way. I always find it interesting when people say, I'm not a good storyteller, or I can't tell stories. Of course you can. We all can. That's all we do, is tell stories. We tell each other about our days, about the things that happened to us, funny things that our kids or our pets did. We can't help ourselves but to tell stories. I think it's one of our most admirable traits as humans, that we can get closer to each other, to our culture, to our society, to our whole world, just by telling stories, real or imagined. And so this holiday season, I want to share with you one of my favorite stories from my favorite era of Warhammer. This is the story of Tybalt from the 5th edition Bretonian army book. It's an unusual tale as far as army book vignettes go. Most of the time of this era, you would see a variety of different stories told in a book. Occasionally, you will get a linked story that perhaps is in two parts. The story of Tybalt is told throughout the entirety of the Bretonian army book, and it's a very unique tale and a great tale for the holidays. It's part ghost story, part adventure, and part destiny, and I'm happy to share it with you today. Tybalt had six brothers and one sister. As such, his family was judged to be relatively small. His eldest brother, Rodrigue, had ridden out, accomplished all sorts of valiant deeds, including slaying the writhing worm of Rotherham, which had earned him the title of Knight of the Realm, his own domain in verdant pasture lands by the river Grismere, and a smiling, blonde-haired wife of impressive assets. The two next oldest brothers had ridden off to prove their worth as knights errant, and were currently conquering the hearts of maidens the length and breadth of Britonia. Travelers constantly brought back news of the two brothers' adventures, and as the minstrels sang tales of their exploits, Tybalt watched the proud faces of his parents with a sinking heart. And then there was Gerald, Tybalt's older brother by a year, with his curling fair hair, good looks, and skillet arms, and his personal charisma, he was his parents' golden son. Gerald was gifted with the best weapons, specially made armor, and the best gray colt to be his warhorse. On the day that Geralt left home, a huge crowd gathered to see him off. As he watched his brother spur his prancing horse round in circles, Tybalt wondered if he were the only person who wouldn't be sorry to see him go, then felt guilty when he saw the tears running down his mother's face. For the first few months, news drifted back slowly. Gerald had defeated some goblins, rescued the odd maiden, hunted down a rampaging beast or two. Nothing spectacular, really, but enough to keep his parents' spirits up. Then, nothing. No news for months and months. Tybalt's mother became more and more worried, though his father remained stoical. Tybalt, in the meantime, flourished in his brother's absence, and concentrated on his knightly training, sword-fighting, horsemanship, and learning the codes and rules of chivalry. He was always made subtly conscious of the fact that though his skills were good, he wasn't quite as good as Gerald. 
who of course could wield a sword, master a spirited steed, play the lute, etc., better than anyone else. A year had passed since Gerald's departure, and Tybalt was nearly sixteen himself. Like his brothers before him, on his sixteenth birthday, he was expected to face and pass the tests of adulthood and be declared a man. Then, as family tradition dictated, he would ride away from his home as a knight errant, bound not to return until he had earned his spurs as a true knight of the realm. In truth, Tybalt felt no great desire to go out and stamp his mark on the world. He was not by nature very ambitious, and the fire of combat didn't burn in his veins the way it had for his elder brothers. He was a proficient swordsman, but he viewed combat as the means to an end, rather than the end itself. He took pleasure in hunting, who wouldn't, but never went out of his way to pick a fight the way other men did, just for the joy of it. On the eve of Tybalt's birthday, gloom hung over the castle like an invisible shroud. His mother hardly spoke to him at all any more, and it seemed to Tybalt she hated him, though he couldn't understand why. His father tolerated him with cold politeness, and the only person who treated him like a human being was his sister, Malfleur, who was uncannily perceptive for a girl her age. How can you declare what your quest will be when you don't even know what you want? She said to him. You must absolve the demons of the past before you can conquer the perils of the future. Tybalt spent the night kneeling on the cold stone floor of the castle chapel, praying to the Lady of the Lake for guidance. Inspiration struck him as the light of the rising sun shone through the stained-glass window, bathing the altar before him in multicolored light. Now he knew clearly what he must do. The day passed in a blur of activity, during which time Tybalt passed all the ritual tests set him and proved himself worthy to carry the arms and armor of a knight errant. The final part of the ceremony was for the young knight to publicly declare the object and purpose of his quest. Tybalt strode up to his parents, removed his helmet, and saluted his father. His mother, he noticed, wouldn't look him in the eye. For the honor of the lady, and the king, and my family, he announced, I declare my quest shall be to search for my brother Geralt, to bring him back home, if he still be alive, or, if he be dead, to avenge his passing. Thus I do swear on my sword and on my honor. As he guessed, his statement caused no small amount of commotion. His mother rushed off crying, his father just glared at him, and all of the servants started whispering to each other. Maybe I should have just said I was going to kill the black boar of Borobil, he thought gloomily. So much for altruism. Tybalt left as soon as he could gather his possessions together. Some battered armor, a plain but serviceable sword, and the only horse his father was prepared to let him have. A beast so bad-tempered, the grooms were going to kill it for meat in the autumn. It was raining, and no one could be bothered to see him off except his sister, who seemed quite cheerful considering. Take this, she said, pressing a cloth-wrapped bundle into his arms. It's mine to give, and it will serve you well. Ride west and search for May's gal. I can't help you any more than this. But good luck. She blew him a kiss and waved goodbye as he rode through the castle gate into the great outside world. When he was finally out of sight of his father's castle, Tybalt stopped his horse and unwrapped his sister's present. It was a sword like no other he had seen. He had never heard of such a thing. It must be worth a king's ransom. How could she have come by it? Despite the damp chill of the day, 
the golden pearl hilt felt warm to his touch, and when he swung the sword, delicate runes along the blade sparkled in the air. Feeling distinctly more cheerful, Tybalt strapped on the sword and rode off down the road to meet his destiny. After seeing her brother off, Malfleur went back to her bedroom and flung herself on her bed to think. There was only so much she could do for the moment. Gerald's vanity had led him to his doom like a moth drawn to a candle. It was perhaps a risk sending Tybalt after him, but her need to be rid of the damning evidence of the sword overweighed any problems that would be posed by Gerald's return. She wasn't yet skilled enough in the magical arts of prediction to tell whether Tybalt would succeed in his quest or not. The sorcerous part of her soul cared nothing for any of her family. They served to merely support and protect her while she was young and gathering her powers. But the part of her that was still a little girl of six summers hoped that he would, because he was a far better person than any of his brothers, and because of the way he tussled her hair when he teased her. Tybalt rode his horse down the narrow, twisting track. Night was falling. He was tired and cold, and not looking forward to yet another night sleeping in the open. At the bottom of the hill, the track turned to follow the course of a shallow stream, then tailed off in a small wooded clearing. In the middle of the clearing, huddled in front of a feeble fire, squatted a grizzled old crone. Tybalt got off of his horse and walked towards her warily. At close quarters, she was particularly hideous, with pock-marked skin, hairy warts, and possibly only one eye, though it was hard to tell under the mop of tangled gray hair. Pardon me for intruding, uh, grizzled old crone. I am embarked on a sacred quest, and I seek May's gow. Can you perhaps tell me anything that will help me? Eh, cackled the old crone. Maybe I can, and maybe I can't. Information's not cheap. What can a lusty young lad like you offer an old girl like me in return, eh? She leered fetchingly in his direction and ran her fingers through her hair, dislodging a small frog. Old crone, as a knight I am sworn to observe strict vows of chastity, replied Tybalt hastily. Perhaps there is some other service I can do you in return. The crone stared at Tybalt thoughtfully, as if assessing him. Well, sir knight... See, you have a big sword. Maybe you can put it to some use. There is something you can do for me. I've lost my little Milo. He ran off into that cave. She turned and pointed to a dark tunnel mouth in the rocks behind her. I haven't seen him for ages, the poor mite. If you can't find my little precious, at least bring me back his collar, which was worth a goat or two, and I'll help you on your quest. By the way, you don't have anything to eat, do you? All I have is this half-loaf of bread. Hand it over, then, snapped the old crone. And it better be white. I don't want any of that disgusting brown stuff. Tybalt showed her the bread, which was a bit soggy, but the old crone snatched it out of his hand and started to gum it happily. What are you hanging around for? Are you sure you don't fancy a quick... Uh, no, thank you very much, replied Tybalt, backing away towards the cave, which seemed a good deal more inviting than the questionable charms of the grizzled old crone in front of him. On the face of it, looking for lost kittens wasn't the most heroic nightly pursuit, but it probably fell under protecting the weak. Anyway, it shouldn't take too long to find the thing. Then he could be on his way. Tybalt made his way carefully down the dark tunnel, steadying himself against the walls with his left hand. In his right, he held the sword his sister had given him, which had the peculiar ability to glow in the dark. Broken bones littered the floor, 
not a good sign, and a foul smell wafted up from the tunnel depths. He heard a scuttling sound up ahead. Feeling rather foolish, he put on his best child-coming voice and called out, Milo! Milo! The scuttling stopped, so he started to walk forwards again, shifting his shield protectively in front of him. Another sound. Something was definitely moving along the tunnel towards him. He was surprised a kitten would make so much noise. Maybe Milo was a dog. The sword glowed brighter and started to vibrate with anticipation, tugging him forward. Suddenly, in a clatter of stones, a monstrous beast galloped round the corner and threw itself at him, roaring with fury. Tybalt didn't have enough time to get a good look at the thing, but it was large, vicious, and had appalling breath. The beast jumped up at him, gnashing its teeth and spraying him with slobber, and Tybalt was forced to defend himself. Teeth the size of daggers chomped and tore at his armor, while the beast raked at Tybalt's body with all its filthy claws. Pushed back against the tunnel wall, Tybalt hacked away at the beast for all he was worth, the magic sword leaving a glowing trail in the air. He didn't have time to think, just react. Fighting a ravening beast wasn't the same as fighting another human being. It was faster, being able to attack with its teeth and two sets of claws. With a sweep of those claws, the beast tore away his shield, sending it bouncing down onto the stony floor. Tybalt was fighting defensively now, trying to protect himself with his sword. He was tiring fast and bleeding from numerous tears in his armor. The beast drew back its head, opened his mouth wide to bite off the knight's head, and in that split second of grace, Tybalt lunged forward and plunged its sword into its gaping maw, skewering its brain. Stinking black blood sprayed out around the tunnel as the dying beast blundered about, eventually collapsing with an almost human sigh. When Tybalt had caught his breath, he limped over to the beast's corpse and turned its body over with his foot. In the fading light of the sword, the beast was a horrible mixture of animal and reptile, as if someone had crossed a bear with a lizard and added an extra pair of legs for good measure. Round its thick neck, embedded in the filthy fur, there was a leather collar. Tybalt was woken in the morning by his horse nuzzling his face. He gently pushed it away and sat up, wincing at the pain. The events of the previous evening were hazy. He remembered fighting the beast and staggering back up the tunnel. But after that, very little. Badly wounded and in shock, he must have collapsed unconscious on the ground. The pain-fevered dreams of the night still haunted the edges of his mind. Confused images of a hideous old crone and a ferocious beast, and a beautiful lady with cool white hands flitted briefly across his consciousness. Then his memory slipped away. During the night, someone had removed his armor and cleaned and dressed his wounds. Tybalt carefully stood up. He felt weak and shaky, and his body was a mass of bruises, but he reckoned he could still ride. He looked about the glade. The old crone was nowhere to be seen. The cold ashes of the fire and a slight whiff in the air were the only evidence of her presence. His armor lay in a pile on the ground. It was useless, too battered and torn to wear again. He would have to leave it behind. Hopefully, if the lady favored him, he would be able to replace it soon. Beside the ruined suit of armor lay his weapons, cleaned. Some bread and cheese, a flask of wine, and an enormous bloody claw. Tybalt gobbled down the food his anonymous benefactor had left him, and considered his situation. He now had no food, no money, no armor, and was no nearer to finding his brother, or the mysterious Maze Gao. On the plus side, he was alive, still had his horse, and had killed a ravening beast. 
As Tybalt loaded his meager possessions onto his horse, he noticed a crude design scratched into the earth. It had been badly defaced by hoofprints, but he was just about able to make out a large arrow pointing across the stream, and the word Mal Iskal scrawled shakily beside it. For two years now, Tybalt had journeyed through the land of Bretonia, trying to discover the fate of his brother, which was somehow linked with the mysterious Maze Gal. During this time, he had killed many monsters, vanquished many enemies, and had passed many tests. As a result of his adventures, he was taller, wiser, and stronger, both of body and in faith. He relied on the chance encounters of fate for direction. Though the objects of his interrogations were evasive, truculent, or spoken riddles, they were never deliberately misleading, and his path took him inexorably southeast across the plains of Baston, past Paravon, following the western edge of the Grey Mountains. At a tiny village called Puy de Vey, on the southeast tip of Massive Oracle, he had talked to a venerable hermit knight who managed to recall a village called Mays Gau had once existed near the forest of Loren. The village had been abandoned hundreds of years ago, for reasons unknown, and must now lie in ruins. The path that once led to the village had long since disappeared, but Tybalt, sensing the end of his quest, knew exactly which way to go. After riding through the woods for days, Tybalt felt sure he had violated the border between Bretonia and the mysterious realm of Loren. Yet none of the elven folk, nor their sylvan allies, appeared to challenge him. Pausing on the crest of a hill to let his horse catch its breath, he looked down into a small bowl-shaped valley. Patchy low cloud clung to the hillsides, making it difficult to see the valley floor, but he could just about make out a cluster of indistinct buildings which looked ruined, surrounded by a circular area of low, tangled vegetation that could be overgrown fields. There were no signs of life, nothing moved, and the place was utterly silent. Spurring his horse on, he rode down the hillside into the mist. Reaching level ground, he finally broke through the forest wall into a delightful sunlit valley. Contented peasants waved at him from the neat, well-tended fields. Fair-haired women sang as they tended their cows and sheep. In the middle of the fields lay a charming village, where Tybalt was welcomed profusely by the villagers. Before he knew what was happening, he found himself sitting outside the inn, tucking into a delicious meat pie, a pint of foaming beer in his hand. As the hot food settled in his belly and the sun warmed his face, he felt all of his cares and worries falling away. He looked at the people sitting around him. They were so friendly, so happy, chatting away in their odd, lilting accent. The last time he had felt so content, so at peace, was back home, when he was a youth before Gerald left home. Relaxed and at peace, he leant back against the warm stucco wall of the inn and closed his eyes. Tybalt awoke with a start temporarily disoriented by the dark, unfamiliar room. Then he remembered the village. He must have nodded off after the meal. Where was he? He climbed off of the bed and stumbled over to a large window. Looking down, he deduced he must be in a room in the upper level of the inn. Strange how different the village looked by feeble moonlight. The cottages which had seemed so fair in the daylight now looked skewed and dilapidated. Their pretty gardens overgrown with weeds. The well appeared to be just a tumble of stones, and the fields were tangled with shrubs and young trees. The scene blurred and deteriorated as he watched it. Dismayed and disoriented, he returned to bed. But as he lay there, suspended between wakefulness and sleep, he heard a ghostly voice calling to him. Save me, brother. 
save me. In the morning, the village was exactly as it had been the day before. The sun shone and the people were welcoming. In fact, the place seemed almost too perfect. There was no dirt, no clutter, no raised voices. All the people were healthy, all the animals plump, and the fruit and vegetables showed no sign of mold or weevil. And why were there no children? Furthermore, and he hadn't noticed this before, there was no castle to protect the place. When he asked the villagers how they protected themselves, they were evasive or changed the subject. When he pressed the point and started asking questions about his brother, the villagers became increasingly sullen, but finally agreed to send for their lord, who they assured Tybalt would be able to answer all of his questions. At midday, when the sun was at its highest, the lord of the village appeared. Where from, exactly, it was impossible to say. He must be an old man, thought Tybalt, watching him hobble painfully up the road, siliciously supported by two of the villagers. The lord stopped when he reached Tybalt, threw back the hood of his cloak, and looked at the young knight straight in the eye. Tybalt froze in horror, and the world turned dark around him. The lord of the village was none other than his missing brother, Gerald. A Gerald horribly changed, old and ill, when he should be young and hale. His golden hair was grey and lanky, his strong body wasted away, his face haggard and paled. Welcome to May's Gow, brother, croaked Gerald. So, have you come to stay, or take me away? Tybalt lay in his bed that night, too restless to sleep. He had spent hours talking to Gerald, a conversation that had ended in acrimony. His brother refused to say what he was doing in this lost village, or why he'd never sent word back home. He claimed his ravaged appearance was the result of a mysterious illness, and that if he were to leave the pure mountain air of the village, he would surely sicken and die. Little was left of the Gerald Tybalt remembered. This withered old man was a fragile shadow of the handsome, proud man his brother once had been, and should be now. Even his personality had changed, as if his will had ebbed along with the decline of his body. Finally, a terrible coughing fit had forced Gerald to retire, carried out of sight by concerned villagers. Once again, Tybalt woke up in the middle of the night, his heart pounding. Yet again he walked over to the window and threw open the shutters. The village had transformed itself back into a ruinous state, and a low mist obscured the ground. Tybalt was seized with dread, but this time was determined to investigate. Grabbing his sword, he hurried out of his room. Tybalt walked around the village, his footsteps deadened by the mist. The buildings were completely ruined, low broken walls covered with ivy. When he looked back to the village square, the inn was a sad jumble of stones and bushes. There were no people no animals, no life of any kind. Yet, something about the square was different. What had changed? What was that looming shape out of the mist where before there had been nothing? As he turned to investigate, the shape solidified and resolved itself into the form of a huge mail-clad knight. He who seeks to rule May's Gao must first defeat me, boomed the strange knight, raising his massive axe and striding towards Tybalt. I have no quarrel with you, Sir Knight, replied Tybalt, backing away. I do not seek to rule this place. Face me or die, intoned the Black Knight. Clanking forward, he swept his axe at Tybalt, who barely managed to parry with a stroke in time. A mighty fight ensued. The opponents were evenly matched in skill, but the Black Knight, encased in full armor, was slower. Tybalt could react and move faster, but had no shield or armor to protect him. 
One slash of the Black Knight's massive axe could cost him a limb or even his head. Tybalt decided his best tactic would be to wear his opponent down and force the Black Knight to lumber round the village after him as he darted back and forth. But his opponent was relentless, attacking like an automaton, and it was Tybalt who started to tire. A trip over a tree root cost him a nasty gash on his arm. The magic of his sword was strangely erratic, as if it were unsure whether the Black Knight were friend or foe. Tybalt pulled on all of his experience, all of his faith, to survive. The fight was hard and seemed to last forever. Finally, the sky started to lighten and the mist receded. Dawn was on its way. The Black Knight hesitated and looked upwards. Gathering all of his remaining strength, Tybalt rushed forward and dealt the knight a terrific blow across his neck at the base of his helm. With a ghastly howl, the Black Knight staggered back and toppled onto the ground with a mighty crash. Yield or die, cried Tybalt, leaping forward to hold his sword at his foe's neck. The Black Knight moaned in response and moved his head feebly from side to side. Placing his foot on the knight's chest, Tybalt leant forward to cut the lacing on his armor and pulled the heavy helmet free. The pale face that stared up at him was Gerald's. Save me, brother. Save me, gasped his brother. Now, while I am myself once more, I beg you kill me. Set my spirit free. Tybalt recoiled with horror. To kill his own brother would be a crime against honor and human dignity. Yet, if Gerald were to be believed, his death would break the enchantment and free his soul from the terrible curse that held it here. On the other hand, by killing his brother, would he in turn become the doomed guardian of May's Gao and have the life slowly sucked from his body and soul? Should he sacrifice his own soul to save his brothers? And if he didn't kill Gerald, what, if anything, would be changed? Would he even be able to leave May's Gao himself? Or would he be trapped here, forced to fight his own brother every night for all eternity, or until one or the other of them perished by his brother's hand? As he stood in the rosy morning light, frozen by indecision, the line of a prayer drifted into his mind, and the greatest of these is mercy. As the golden rays of sun broke over the hilltops, Tybalt raised his sword and prepared to strike. That was the story of Tybalt, as told in the 5th edition Bretonian Army book. It's a great story of a hero's journey and growth from a young aspiring knight into a formidable warrior in a quest to save his brother, and in the end, he does, in a matter of speaking. I hope you've enjoyed this little story. From all of us here at The Orchard, I wish you happy holidays and a brave new year. We are looking forward to bringing you more great Warhammer content in this new year. And I am so glad that you have chosen to join us for it. I have been your host, Nathan Stone. And until next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the War Games Orchard. If you enjoy the show, why not join us on Patreon? There you'll gain access to all of our bonus content for any level of donation. It's a great way to help us keep going and enjoy extra Orchard content. If Patreon's not your thing please consider giving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard and The War Games Orchard, or by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com.